after a long, insightful, and hopefully encouraging summer break journeying, journeying through the wisdom section of the Bible, it's time to return to the story. If you haven't been with us, this is the story. The story is an abridged chronological narrative of the scriptures. We ended the spring, if you haven't been here in a while, by finishing up the first half of the story, what is known as the Old Testament. And today we begin, and this fall we will finish, the second half known as the New Testament. Looking back, we've come a long way. From the creation of the world to the dramatic reset of humanity via the flood. From the initiation of a covenant with one man named Abraham to the birth of a nation named Israel. From the exodus from slavery and the wilderness to the building of a kingdom in the promised land. From the rise and fall of prophets, priests, and kings to the division, fall, and exile of a chosen people. We've walked the peaks and valleys of humanity's relationship with God and ended the first half of the story on a bit of a cliffhanger. Israel, established to be set apart as a light unto all nations, to bring everyone home to the Lord, has fallen apart as a people. In a sense, at the end of the Old Testament, they find themselves back where they started, in bondage. Back in their homeland, yes, but under house arrest, under the occupation of a foreign power. Their only remaining hope was the promise of a Messiah, one like Moses, yet even greater, who would liberate them not just from their oppressors, but who would liberate them from the enemy within, their wayward, fickle, and rebellious selves. Prophets all the way from Isaiah to Malachi had been talking about the coming of this Savior from the very beginning. But the thing is, none of them had given a due date. And so as we come to Act 2 of the story, a great deal of time has passed. Whereas we paused for three months of summer to get here, those who were first a part of this story had to wait 400 years. All that time, memories of a promised Messiah were all the people had to hold on to. Through centuries of rival superpowers changing hands, first the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, beyond memory, there was only silence. Not a word, not a miracle, not a sign from God since the prophet Malachi. The remembrance of redemption is all that gave life to the present hope for the future of Israel. And then it happened, though not in the way that anyone expected. God suddenly, dramatically pulled off the greatest counterintelligence operation the universe has ever seen. The promised Savior came, arriving right under the nose of those who thought they were in power and in control. Smack dab in the middle of the occupation, in a forgotten province of the Roman Empire, the salvation of Israel and the world comes not with a bang, but a whimper. The cry, not of war, but of a baby breathing new life. And this long-awaited Messiah comes as an heir of David, to be sure, as promised, yet not from a priestly line in Bethlehem but a priest's niece in Nazareth, born not in pomp and splendor, but in seeming scandal to a young girl found pregnant before wedlock, born in squalor, the son of a tradesman, a mason, a carpenter. 
We know this part of the story as I describe it to you. We know it. We know this part of the story of Mary and Joseph, of angels, shepherds, and wise men, all these things that no one at the time saw coming. But the real surprise in all of it was not what happened, but who came. And that's what John wants to communicate in the opening of his gospel his version of the next part of the story. Rather than offering a a recap of events as they unfolded in Nazareth and then in Bethlehem, John wants us to realize something just didn't happen that no one expected. Someone came that nobody saw coming. If you have those Bibles open here from John chapter 1. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was light, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This part of the story is what we believe, we who believe now call Christmas. And for us, Christmas comes once a year. You know, sometimes we talk about Christmas in July, but Christmas in September? At first, it might seem weird to be dealing with this part of the story now, given our observance of Christmas, brace yourselves, is only 14 weeks away. What? However... I believe we have an opportunity. This morning we have before us an opportunity, the chance to pay attention to the truth and the meaning of Christmas without all the busyness of the holiday season. Because let's be honest, we all tend to be pretty distracted in December. Today, we have some quality time to really stop, listen, and reflect, to truly let this part of the story sink in without having to worry about decorations, cards, presents, and family gatherings. 
still in saying that, I recognize for some of us, it may be hard for us to hear, to learn anything new. I mean, after so many Christmases, I won't ask you to count how many Christmases you've celebrated, but after so many Christmases, carols we know by heart, pageants we've seen a hundred times, services and sermons we've sat through on so many December 24ths, we tend to approach the Christmas story on autopilot, half listening if we're really paying attention at all. Yeah, 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 we know. We know. We know this part of the story so well. The plot point, the twist in the tale. The word becomes flesh. The creator becomes the created. God becomes man, human. We're so accustomed to saying it, singing it, seeing the message of the angels plastered over all our shopping centers and front lawns. We've sort of lost the shock and awe of it all. The mind-boggling, heart-stopping, game-changing, history-shifting nature of the announcement of what we profess to believe, of what we declare is true. So this morning, the very first thing I want to do is to try to maybe get us out of that over-familiarity, that sense of been there, done that. As many of us know, one of the theories for the beginning of the universe that's gained popularity over the last few decades is that of the Big Bang. Based on the groundbreaking work of Edwin Hubble, what lies behind the theory of the Big Bang is this idea that out of nothing came something. And the universe has been expanding ever since. Even more recently, you may not know this, scientists such as Stephen Hawking and Neil Turok have been theorizing regarding what came before the Big Bang. And it's out of this question, by the way, that we hear speculative talk of inner dimensions, multiverses rather than universes, and string theories. And contrary to what we're often taught, the biblical perspective to such ideas is not as far removed as we might think. The Bible is not a science textbook, but the scriptures affirm that indeed, out of nothing, something, Life was created. Genesis declares God spoke creation into being out of nothing. And as for the question of what came before this moment, the Bible's response would be God. The very first words of Genesis, in the beginning, God. The creative, beyond any known dimension, outside of time, multiversal energy that is God came before life as we know it. However, as John clarifies here in his allusions back to the creation of the universe, back to Genesis, in the beginning, John writes, the word, there was the word, and the word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And you've probably heard this, but the Greek word John is using here for word is logos. And John is using this word intentionally. John's using this term logos to talk about the birth of Jesus to, so as to address Greek concepts of reason and logic. The philosophy of Plato, was, which was, was of his day. John is using this term about the birth of Jesus to talk about Greek concepts of reason and logic, the philosophy of Plato, that much like the scientific inquiries of today, were speculating about the origin of life and the ultimate source of meaning. 
In the opening to his gospel, John is stating there was nothing before God. God didn't come into being. God was not created. God is the creator. The Lord has always been, and the Lord will always be. God is eternal. Now, I've spent some time here because it's significant to grasp the first part of this declaration by John because of how it attaches to what he reveals next about the birth of Jesus. In the beginning, John writes, the eternal, everlasting God spoke creation into being out of nothing, provided not just the spark or the big bang to get things fully started, but purposefully crafted a universe and fearfully and wonderfully shaped us in his image. And now, John writes, after 400 years of silence, this same God has spoken once again, creating something out of nothing, a possibility, a reality no one could have imagined. The Lord spoke, and the word the word of the Lord, God himself, became flesh. In an unprecedented and unrepeatable way, this creative, beyond any known dimension, this outside of time, multiversal, everlasting and eternal God, purposefully, fearfully and wonderfully subjected himself, confined himself to the limits of our finitude the boundaries of the time and space he created for us. What's that line from Aladdin? I hope you've all seen the animated Aladdin. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. <laughs> the theological term for what John is talking about here is the incarnation. I don't know if you're with me. I, I, can't, I can't read the room right now. It's okay. My friends, before we even get to what happens next, to where and how far this child, once grown, will go, to what he freely will do for us, we have to stop here. The first thing is not taking the incarnation for granted as a given as the obvious call, the logical choice, the standard response. No one saw this coming. Nobody saw him coming. We have to let it sink in just how far, just how low, just how outside the box God came for us. In the second and final act, the author entered the story. The author entered the story. Our Heavenly Father came and walked among us, came running to us as his prodigal children in the person of Jesus Christ. My friends, every time we think about Jesus, God in the flesh, creator come down, becoming one of his created, we need to pause. We need to ponder. We need to allow ourselves to get a little weak in the knees. Still to this very day, what happened and who came ought to give us pause. It ought to blow our minds and our hearts wide open. It's the first thing I want us to just sit in for a second. Don't let this become so rote, so familiar, that you domesticate this. This is epic. This changes things. 
This changes everything. We know this part of the Bible so well, the Christmas story, but do we get the message? The implication of this sudden turns, turn of events, the full significance of this, this surprise. I mean, what does it mean to believe, to know God came down, the word became flesh and dwelled among us? For me, two insights stand out. when we just sit here. The first is the incarnation is a wake-up call to all of us. The incarnation is a wake-up call to all of us. If the Messiah had to be divinely sent, right? If the Savior of the world had to be divinity wrapped in our humanity, if God had to come down to get the job done, then the incarnation is the end, once and for all, of thinking, I am better than someone else. That you and I, you or I, are better than anyone else. Because the incarnation reveals that we, none of us, could ever get to heaven, could ever get ourselves right, be healed, be saved, be set free on our own. Together, we've fallen, and we can't pick ourselves back up. Together, we've stepped in it, and we're covered head to toe, and we're not getting clean by ourselves. We can look up to heaven all we want, but God had to come down to us You can self-actualize, you can self-discipline and self-help all you want, but the Lord had to come in the person of Jesus so you could finally see your true self. Not who the world tells you that you are, not even who you tell yourself you can be, but who you were created to be, who you can fully become in Christ. The incarnation is a wake-up call to the world. We ought to pay attention to how Jesus came. God didn't come among the rich, the powerful, and the famous. And yet, more than 2,000 years later, my friends, these are still the attributes we prize, we value, we equate with success, being rich, being powerful, becoming famous. And if you doubt it, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Who do you stop and pay attention to? Who do you follow? Who do you give your attention to? We all do it. The rich, the powerful, the famous. What do we aspire to be? What are the benchmarks of making it? When do we say to our children, I'm so proud of you? When they're rich. When they're powerful, when they're famous, you're really getting somewhere in life. You've made it. If you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're famous. Let me tease this out even further to show us that we're still stuck here. We understand riches. You and I, we understand riches, and we understand poverty. For us, we understand riches, we understand poverty, and we may be made poor by our circumstances. Right? We may be made poor by our circumstances, but to choose poverty is beyond us. It's something we would never do. No one in their right mind would do it, right? If all of a sudden your child came home and said, you know what, I've decided I don't want to be rich, I don't want to be powerful, I don't want to be famous. In fact, I think I want to be poor. You wouldn't go, awesome. Wow. You'd go, okay, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? I got all this wealth. 
I've amassed all this power. I've gained all this influence so that you could become rich, powerful, and famous. Stop talking crazy. We can be made poor by our circumstances, but to choose poverty is beyond us. I mean, no, that's something we would never do. No one in their right mind would do it. And yet that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? By his own free will, the richest, most powerful, and most famous of all, the creator of everything, the God of the universe, put aside his glory, emptied himself, and for our sakes became poor. Poorer than anyone has ever been. My friends, the incarnation is a wake-up call to rethink how we measure success. A wake-up call to gaining all the world but losing our soul, ourselves in the process. The incarnation challenges us, in other words, to live from grace instead of striving for it. To live from grace instead of striving for it. Deity swaddled in rags, divinity nestled in the poverty of a stable. Jesus was born this way to show us how God works. The proud. The Lord doesn't favor the rich. The Lord doesn't give preferred status to the powerful. No, God is at home. Through the incarnation, we see this. God is at home with the humble, the tired, the weak, and the lowly of this world. The incarnation, in other words, happens among the least desirable people to us. So the next time you see that person, you just want to walk past without acknowledging. The next time you hold a grudge and take your pound of flesh, rather than offering even an ounce of forgiveness to that family member, that friend, that coworker, or maybe even that total stranger. The next time you pass judgment, or maybe even in your heart condemn another human being because of their politics, because of their skin color, because of their cultural heritage, because of even their faith tradition, stop and remember, you aren't better than they are. You need Jesus just as much as they do. Beloved, we're all in the same boat. And apart from the grace of God, we're all going down together. As long as we pretend we're okay, as long as we blame others, as long as we make excuses for our bad behavior, we've missed the wake-up call of the incarnation. Those of us who believe in Jesus aren't better than anyone else. We are united rather than divided by our differences in race, in class, in ethnicity, in age, experience, and gender. We are united rather than divided in our mutual need for Christ, for God to come down and save us, for the Lord Almighty to show up in the flesh and to show us the way, the truth, and the life. That's the first Insight of the incarnation. The second for me flows from the first. The Christmas story, the incarnation is a wake-up call to realize our need for God, but it's a wake-up call that's also good news. It's the revelation that God, in giving himself to us in Jesus Christ, is giving us exactly what we need. The good news is not only, in other words, that God comes to us. The good news is also that God comes for us. For you and me. God gives himself for us. 
for you and me. And when God shows up, don't miss this, when God shows up to save the world, to save our lives, he starts in the messiness of a manger. He starts in life, not as, not as we try to orchestrate it, but life as it comes. Life as it happens. Not always neat and tidy, though we try to pretend and make it seem so, but life the way it happens when we didn't plan it that way. Christmas reveals that God says, I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. God says all that by cuddling up next to us in the cold, in the dark, in the chaos, in the storm. In other words, the incarnation establishes our relationship with God. Our standing isn't based on our performance. And that's good news, right? It is good news. I mean, that is good news because we all fail sooner or later, and usually more than once. We all screw up. We all get it wrong. We all lose our way. We all forget who we are. But our standing, our relationship with the Lord is secure because it is not based on our performance. It's rooted in his grace. It's based on Jesus. In other words, God's coming for us doesn't depend on us. God's coming for us doesn't depend on us. Even though we may not have been looking for Jesus, even though nobody saw him coming, Christ came anyway. Christ came anyway. We sometimes say, and it's blasphemy, capital B, blasphemy. We sometimes say, in the church, God helps those who help themselves. But that's not found anywhere in the Bible. It would be more accurate to say, God helps those who can't help themselves and aren't ashamed to admit it. The incarnation is God our Father's assurance to us. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we've gone, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. In the family of God, there are no stepchildren. We are all, all of us, adopted by grace. And while through the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, our Father seeks and purposes for us to be changed, to grow and mature in his love and grace. At the same time, the incarnation is his assurance to us no matter what happens, whatever we do or don't do, we are and never could be more or less of a child to him than we are in the beginning when he comes to us in Christ. Once a child of God always a child of God. God rescues us. God saves us personally. And that means that God both comes in person, and it also means that God comes for each and every person. This whole wide world we're living in together. This whole wide world. Do you know that for over 2,000 years, People have wondered what Jesus looked like. Artists in nearly every age have attempted to capture Jesus as they imagined him to be. And much of that artwork tells us more about the artist than it does about Jesus. What do you picture when you see Jesus? If I were to ask you to close your, your eyes right now and picture Jesus, what do you see? You're a little quick on the slide, but that's okay. 
but you probably see this. Most Americans tend to picture Jesus like this. And if you don't know what this is, this is Warner Solomon's famous painting called The Head of Christ. Based on this one piece of art, millions of us think this is what Jesus really looks like. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong if this is the picture you grew up with in your house over the mantle. Or maybe another picture. Fine, pick another one. That picture, that's what Jesus looks like. But here's the thing. The gospel writers, including John, tell us nothing at all about Jesus' physical appearance. We know he was Jewish. We know he was raised in the Middle East. We know he grew up in a blue-collar family. But we aren't told anything about Jesus' height or weight, the color of his eyes, the color of his hair, the sound of his voice, anything distinctive about his features. Isn't that interesting? Nothing. Nothing. Not even one detail. Cleft in his chin, you know, one, thing, one toe was bigger than the other one or something like that. Nothing. And I think the, the reason the gospel writers don't tell us anything about Jesus' physical appearance is because they want us to understand and remember God in Christ did not come for one race, one ethnic group, one nation, or one language. He came to be the savior of the whole world for every nation on earth, for all humanity, for all people, not just for Israel, not just for the Jews, not just for the Romans, not just for the Greeks, not just for Americans, for all the world. The Christmas story is a wake-up call that we are one in our need for Christ, but the Christmas story is a wake-up call that's good news that we are one in what? in who we receive in Christ, God himself. And while the incarnation is fundamentally about God getting physical, the word becoming flesh, the Lord becoming visible to us through our humanity, the incarnation is not about the appearance of God. It's not about what God looked like. Brace yourselves, it's not even about the fact that Jesus was male. The incarnation is about the revelation of the character of God. The perfect and beautiful symmetry of the image, the character of God being reflected without crack or obstruction in and through our humanity. Let me say that again. Listen very carefully to what I just said. The incarnation is about the revelation of the character of God. The perfect and beautiful symmetry of the image, the character of God being reflected without crack or obstruction in and through our humanity. Because here's the thing, no one ever saw that before. No one ever saw that before. No one knew what they could look like. What perfect humanity in sync with God looks like. Beloved, we don't follow a picture of Jesus we follow the character of Christ. Who we are in, with, under, and through this God. And that's the, that's the, the last thing here is, and this is crazy. I mean, I, again, I'm, my mind's blown as I'm preaching this to you. I, I literally just want to just stop and get on my knees and start singing and praying. It's too much. But it doesn't stop there. Because the implication of the, of the incarnation, the implication of what John tells us here, Right? It doesn't stop with God coming in Christ. Brace yourselves. God comes to us in Christ. And then, through the Holy Spirit, Christ is in us. In other words, the Lord doesn't just dwell among us. Through our response of faith, the Lord dwells in 
you and me. In other words, God the Father isn't a helicopter parent, you know? Just coming down and doing it all for us in Christ. Be real careful there, because that's contrary to what we teach and tell ourselves. Oh my gosh, you're such screw-ups. You guys are so, oh my, oh my, oh my, my special little children, you know? I'm just going to come down and take care of all it for you. Do your homework for you. Pass your tests. You know, do all that you just can't do it. God's not a helicopter parent. Let me be clear as I'm saying this, because for some of you who really know your theology, you might be going, whoa. Yes, only Jesus can save us. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. Yes, all that we have and all that we are is by the grace of God. But the implications of the incarnation, my word, not my word, his, is that even though God is the only one who can save us in Jesus Christ, and we can't save ourselves, even though all we have and all we are is by the grace of God in Christ, the Lord still promises and purposes to work in and through us. This is the wider significance of the incarnation. We are jars of clay through which the treasure of the kingdom of God is shared and unleashed. We are ambassadors for Christ. The representatives, as if God himself were present and speaking, the representatives of the truth and power of the gospel, we are representatives of that gospel through everything we say and do, how we live and breathe. We are the body of Christ, the hands and feet, the eyes and the face of Jesus to those who do not know, who have not heard, who have never met Jesus. And just like that, the implications of this part of the story, what we call Christmas, just got a whole lot bigger. The Lord changes us from within. Amazing grace indeed, but it doesn't stop there. The Lord changes things. The Lord changes the world through us. Christ in us. Beloved, the gospel starts here. Before Palm Sunday, before the upper room, before the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross and the tomb, the gospel starts here, where God once again speaks something out of nothing. Through the life of Jesus, the love of God beats in a human heart. Through the life of Jesus, the wisdom of God now speaks from human lips. Through the life of Jesus, the mercy of God reaches forth from human hands. Through the life of Jesus, God was born just as we are born, lived as we live, and died as we will die. And in the direness of our brokenness, in the greatest of our longings, God gets what he wants by giving us what we need, a relationship. A relationship strong enough to forgive and forget. A relationship strong enough to face death willingly. A relationship strong enough to be resurrected and to live eternal. So this morning, let's answer that wake-up call. Let's rejoice in this good news. For this relationship God offers us is not just past tense. So many of us, I accepted Christ into my heart in the past. This relationship God offers us is not just past tense. It's present and future too. This God in Christ still seeks to be known and in the knowledge of Jesus purposes to show us, to show you your true self as you are and as you can become through the Holy Spirit. 
Talk isn't cheap when the word becomes flesh. Because when the word becomes flesh, all things are made new, including us. The fact that no one saw this coming, the fact that nobody saw him coming, means that when we least expect it, when we can't believe it, when we think that's impossible, when we feel there's no hope, when we know we've got nothing left, we're done, we're finished, the fact that no one saw this coming, that nobody saw him coming, means God's coming for us too. For the incarnation proves once and for all, God doesn't just find a way. God makes a way to us. Amen.